Chapter Eight of the Tale of Terror: A Study of the Gothic Romance by Edith Burkhead. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight: Scott and the Novel of Terror. In seventeen seventy-five, we find Miss Lydia Languish's maid ransacking the circulating libraries of Bath and concealing under her cloak novels of sensibility and a fashionable scandal. Some twenty years later, in the selfsame city, Catherine Morland is lost from all worldly concerns of dressing or dinner over the pages of Adolfo, and Isabella Thorpe is collecting in her pocket-book the horrid titles of romances from the German. In 1814, apparently, the vogue of the sentimental, the scandalous, the mysterious and the horrid still persisted. Scott, in the introductory chapter to Waverley, disrespectfully passes in review the modish novels, which, as it proved, were doomed to be supplanted by the series of romances he was then beginning. Quote, Had I announced in my frontispiece Waverley, a tale of other days, must not every novel reader have anticipated a castle scarce less than that of Adolfo, of which the eastern wing has been long uninhabited, and the keys either lost or consigned to the care of some aged butler or housekeeper, whose trembling steps about the middle of the second volume were doomed to guide the hero or heroine to the ruinous precincts would not the owl have shrieked and the cricket cried in my very title-page and could it have been possible to me with a moderate attention to decorum to introduce any scene more lively than might have been produced by the jocularity of a clownish but faithful valet or the garrulous narrative of the heroine's filled chamber when rehearsing the stories of blood and horror which she'd heard in the servants' hall. Again had my title borne Waverley, a romance from the German. What had so obtuse as not to imagine forth a profligate abbot, an oppressive duke, a secret and mysterious association of Rosicrucians and Illuminati, with all their properties of black cowls, caverns, daggers, electrical machines, trapdoors, and dark lanterns. Or if I had rather chosen to call my work a sentimental tale, would it have not been a sufficient presage of a heroine with a profusion of auburn hair and a harp the soft solace of her solitary hours which she fortunately always finds means of transporting from castle to cottage though she herself be sometimes obliged to jump out of a two pair of stairs window and is more than once bewildered on her journey alone and on foot without any guide but a blousy peasant girl whose jargon she can scarcely understand or again, if my Waverley had been entitled A Tale of the Times, wouldst thou not, gentle reader, have demanded from me a dashing sketch of the fashionable world, a few anecdotes of private scandal, a heroine from Grosvenor Square, and a hero from the Barouche Club or the Four in Hand, with a set of subordinate characters from the Elegants of Queen Street East, or the dashing heroes of the Bow Street office? End quote. Yet Scott himself had once trodden in these well-worn paths of romance, in the general preface to the collected edition of 1829, where he seeks to, quote, ravel out his weaved-up follies, end quote. He refers to, quote, a tale of chivalry planned thirty years earlier, in the style of the Castle of Otranto, with plenty of border characters and supernatural incident, end quote. His outline of the plot and a fragment of the story, which was to be entitled Thomas the Rhymer, are printed as an appendix to the preface, Scott intended to base his story on an ancient legend found in Reginald Scott's discovery of witchcraft, 
concerning the horn and sword of Thomas of Hesseldorn. Canaby Dick, a jolly horse cowper, was led by a mysterious stranger through an opening in a hillside into a long range of stables. In every stall stood a coal-black horse, and by every horse lay a knight in coal-black armour, with a drawn sword in his hand. All were as still and silent as if hewn out of marble. At the far end of the gloomy hall, illuminated like the halls of Eblis only by torches, there lay upon an ancient table a horn and a sword. A voice bade Dick try his courage, warning him that much depended upon his first choosing either the horn or the sword. Dick, whose stout heart quailed before the supernatural terrors of the hall, attempted to blow the horn before unsheathing the sword. At the first feeble blast, the warriors and their steeds started to life, the knights fiercely brandishing their weapons and clashing their armour. Dick made a fruitless attempt to snatch the sword. After a mysterious voice had pronounced his doom, he was hurled out of the hall by a whirlwind of irresistible fury. He told his story to the shepherds, who found him dying on the cold hillside. Regarding the legend as an unhappy foundation for a prose story, Scott did not complete his fragment, which in style and treatment is not unlike the Gothic experiments of Mrs. Barbauld and Dr. Nathan Drake. Such a story as that of the magic horn and sword might have been told in the simple words that occur naturally to a shepherd, quote, warmed to courage over his third tumbler, end quote, like the old peasant to whom Stevenson entrusts the terrible tale of Thrawn Janet, or to wandering Willie, who declared, quote, I wiles make a tale serve the turn mong these country bodies, and I have some fearsome ones, that mack the old carlin' shake on the settle, and bits of bairns scale on their minis out from their beds. End quote. The personality of the narrator, swayed by the terror of his tale, would have cast a spell that Scott's carefully framed sentences fail to create. Another of Scott's disjecta membra, composed at the end of the 18th century, is the opening of a story called The Lord of Ennerdale, in which the family of Ratcliffe settles down before the fire to listen to a story serving not a little of the marvellous. As Lady Ratcliffe and her daughters, quote, had heard every groan and lifted every trapdoor in company with the noted heroine of Adolfo, had valorously mounted en croup behind the horsemen of Prague through all his seven translations, had followed the footsteps of Moore through the forests of Bohemia, end quote, and were even suspected of an acquaintance with Lewis's monk. Scott was setting himself no easy task when he undertook to thrill those seasoned adventurers, after their prologue, which leads one to expect a banquet of horrors, only a very brief fragment of the story is forthcoming. Though he gently derides Lady Ratcliffe's literary tastes, Scott, too, was an admirer of Mrs. Ratcliffe's novels, and had been so entranced by Berger's Lenore that he attempted an English version. It was after hearing Taylor's translation of this ballad read aloud that he uttered his dismal ejaculation, quote, I wish to heaven I could get a skull and two crossbones, a whim that was speedily gratified. He too, like Lady Radcliffe, had read De Ruber and translated Goethe's Getz von Berlinschingen. He delighted in Lewis's Tales of Wonder, 1801, where the verse gallops through horrors so fearful that the lights in the chamber burn blue, and himself contributed to the collection. He wrote goblin dramas, as terrific in intention, though not in performance, as Lewis's Castle Spectre and Maturin's Bertram. 
his latin call thesis dealt with the kind of subject monk lewis or harrison ainsworth or poe might have chosen the disposal of the dead bodies of persons legally executed scott continually added to his store of quaint and grisly learning both from popular tradition and from a library of such works as Beauvais' Pandemonium or The Devil's Cloister Opened, Sinclair's Satan's Invisible World Discovered, whence he borrowed the name of the jackanapes in Wandering Willie's Tale, and the horseshoe frown for the brow of the red gauntlets, Hayward's Hierarchy of the Blessed Angels, Joseph Taylor's History of Apparitions, from which he quotes in Woodstock. He was familiar with all the niceties of ghostly etiquette. He could distinguish at a glance the various ranks and orders of demons and spirits, he was versed in charms and spells he knew exactly how a wizard ought to be dressed this law not only stood him in good stead when he compiled his letters on demonology and witchcraft but served to adorn his poems and novels there was nothing unhealthy in his attitude toward the spectral world at an inn he slept soundly in one bed of a double room while a dead man occupied the other twice in his life he confessed to having felt eerie once at Glam's Castle, which was said to be haunted by a presence in a secret chamber, and once when he believed he saw an apparition on his way home in the twilight. But he usually jests cheerfully when he speaks of the supernatural. He was interested in tracing the sources of terror and in studying the mechanism of ghost stories. The axioms which he lays down are sound and suggestive. Quote, ghosts should not appear too often or become too chatty. The magician shall evoke no spirits whom he is not capable of endowing with manners and language corresponding to their supernatural character. Perhaps to be circumstantial and abundant in minute detail and in one word, to be somewhat prosy, is the secret mode of securing a certain necessary degree of credulity from the hearers of a ghost story. The chord which vibrates and sounds at a touch remains in silent tension under continued pressure. End quote. Scott's ghost story, The Tapestried Chamber, or The Lady in the Sark, which he heard from Miss Anna Seward, who had an unexpected gift for recounting such things at country house parties, gives the impression of being carefully planned according to rule. As a human being, The Lady in the Sark had a black record, but, considered dispassionately as a ghost, her manners and deportment are irreproachable. The ghost-seer's independence of character are so finely insisted upon that it seems impertinent to doubt the veracity of his story. My Aunt Margaret's mirror was told to Scott in childhood by an ancient spinster, whose pleasing fancy it was to read alone in her chamber by the light of a taper fixed in a candlestick, which she had formed out of a human skull, and who was learned in superstitious lore. She describes accurately the mood when the female imagination is in due temperature to enjoy a ghost story. Quote, all that is indispensable for the enjoyment of the milder feeling of supernatural awe is that you should be susceptible of the slight shuddering which creeps over you when you hear a tale of terror. That well-vouched tale which the narrator, having first expressed his general disbelief of all such legendary lore, selects and produces as having something in it which he has always been obliged to give up as inexplicable. Another symptom is a momentary hesitation to look round you when the interest of the narrative is at the highest and the third a desire to avoid looking into a mirror when you are alone in your chamber for the evening in her story aunt margaret describes how in a magic mirror belonging to dr baptista damiotti lady bothwell and her sister lady forrester see the wedding ceremony of sir philip forrester and a young girl in a foreign city 
interrupted by Lady Forrester's brother, who is slain in the duel that ensues. Scott regarded these two stories as trifles designed to while away a leisure hour. On Wandering Willie's tale, a masterpiece of supernatural terror, he bestowed unusual care. The ill-fared fearsome couple, Sir Robert with his face gash and ghastly as Satan's, and Major Weir, the jackanape in his red-laced coat and wig, Steenie's eerie encounter with the strange on horseback, the ribald crew of feasters in the hall, are described so faithfully in such vivid phrases that it is no wonder Willie should remark at one point of the story, I almost think I was there myself, though I couldn't have been born at the same time. The power of the tale, which fascinates us from beginning to end, which can be read again and again with renewed pleasure, depends partly on wandering Willie's gifts as a narrator, partly on the emotions that stir as he talks. With unconscious art, he always uses the right word in his description, and chooses those details that help us to fix the rapidly changing imagery of his scenes, and he reproduces exactly the natural dialogue of the speakers. He begins in a tone of calm, unhurried narration, with only a hint of fear in his voice, but at the death of Sir Robert grows breathless with horror and excitement, the uncanny incident of the silver whistle that sounds from the dead man's chamber is skilfully followed by a matter-of-fact account of Steenie's dealings with the new laird. The emotion culminates in the terror of the hall of ghastly revellers, whose wild shrieks made Willie's good sire's very nails grow blue and chilled the marrow in his bones. So lifelike is the scene, so full of colour and movement, that Steenie's descendants might well believe their good sire, like Dante, had seen hell. The notes, introductions, and appendices to Scott's works are stored with material for novels of terror. The notes to Marmion, for instance, contain references to a necromatic priest whose story very much resembles that of Ambrosio in The Monk, to an elfin warrior, and to a chest of treasure jealously guarded for a century by the devil in the likeness of a huntsman. In The Lady of the Lake there is a note on the ancient legend of the phantom sire. In Rokeby there is an allusion to the demon frigate wandering under a curse from harbour to harbour, to Scott, Bogglewark was merely a diversion. He did not choose to make it the mainspring either of his poems or his romances. In The Lay of the Last Minstrel, he had, indeed, intended to make the Goblin Page play a leading part. But the imp, as Scott remarked to Miss Seward, quote, by the natural baseness of his propensities, contrived to slink downstairs into the kitchen, end quote. The White Lady of Avenel, who appears in the Monastery, 1830, a boisterous creature who rides on horseback, splashes through streams and digs a grave, was wisely withdrawn in the sequel, The Abbot. In the introduction, Scott states, quote, The white lady is scarcely supposed to have possessed either the power or the inclination to do more than inflict terror or create embarrassment, and is always subjected by those mortals who could not assert superiority over her, End quote. The only apology Scott could offer to the critics who derided his wraith was that the readers... Quote, or to allow for the capriccios of what is, after all, but a better sort of goblin. End quote. She was suggested by the undine of de la Motte Foc. In his next novel, The Fortunes of Nigel, Scott formally renounced the mystic and the magical. Quote, not a cocklane scratch, not one bounce on the drum of Tedworth, not so much as a poor tick of a solitary death watch beetle in the wainscot. End quote but Scott cannot banish spectres so lightly from his imagination. Apparitions, such as the Bodoc Glass, 
who warns Fergus McEvor of his approaching death in Waverley, or the wraith of a Highlander in a white cockade, who is seen on the battlefield in the legend of Montrose, had appeared in his earlier novels, and others appear again and again later. In The Bride of Lammermoor, the only one of Scott's novels which might fitly be called a tale of terror, the atmosphere of horror and the sense of overhanging calamity effectually prepare our minds for the supernatural, and the wraith of old Alice, who appears to the master of Ravenswood, is strangely solemn and impressive. But even more terrible is the description of the three hags laying out her corpse. The appearance of Vander with the bloody finger in the haunted chamber of the Saxon manor in the betrothed is skilfully arranged, and Evelyn's terror is described with convincing reality. In Woodstock, Scott attempted the method of explaining away the apparently supernatural, although in his Lives of the Novelists he expressly disapproves of what he calls the precaution of Snug the Joiner. Charged by Ballantyne with imitating Mrs. Radcliffe, Scott defends himself by asserting, quote, My object is not to excite fear of supernatural things in my reader, but to show the effect of such fear upon the agents of the story. One a man in sense and firmness, one a man unhinged by remorse, one a stupid, uninquiring clown, one a learned and worthy but superstitious divine. End quote. As Scott in his introduction quotes the passage from a treatise entitled The Secret History of the Good Devil of Woodstock, which reveals that the mysteries were performed by one Joseph Collins with the aid of two friends, a concealed trapdoor and a pound of gunpowder, he cannot justly be accused of deceiving his readers. There are suggestions of Mrs. Radcliffe's method in others of his novels. In The Antiquary, before Lovell retires to the green room at Monkbar, he is warned by Miss Griselda Oldbuck of a well-forward old gentleman in a queer old-fashioned dress with whiskers turned upwards on his upper lip, as long as Baudrin's, who is wont to appear at one's bedside. He falls into an uneasy slumber and in the middle of the night is startled to see a green huntsman leave the tapestry and turn into the well-forward old gentleman before his very eyes. In Old Mortality, Edith Belenden mistakes her lover for his apparition, just as one of Mrs. Radcliffe's heroines might have done. In Peveril of the Peak, Fenella's communications with the hero in his prison, when he mistakes her voice for that of a spirit, have an air of gothic mystery. The awe-inspiring villain who appears in Marmion and Rokeby may be distinguished by his scowl, his passion-lined face and gleaming eye. Rashly, in Rob Roy, who, understanding Greek, Latin and Hebrew, quote, need not care for ghost or bar-ghost, devil or dobby, end quote, and whose sequestered apartment the servants durst not approach at nightfall for, quote, fear of boggles and brownies and long nebbit things fray the neast world, end quote, as of the same lineage. Sir Robert Redgauntlet, too, might have stepped out of one of Mrs. Radcliffe's romances. His niece is not unlike one of her heroines. She speaks in the very accents of Emily when she says, quote, now I have still so much of our family spirit as enables me to be as composed in danger as most of my sex, and upon two occasions in the course of our journey, a threatened attack by banditti and the overturn of our carriage, I had the fortune so to conduct myself as to convey to my uncle a very favourable idea of my intrepidity. Jeanie Deans, the most admirable and most skilfully drawn of Scots women, is a daring contrast to the traditional heroine of romance. The delicate distresses of persecuted Emiles shrink into insignificance amid the tragedy and comedy of actual life portrayed in the Waverley novels. 
the tyrannical marquises vindictive stepmothers dark-browed villains scheming monks chattering domestics and fierce banditti are thrust aside by a motley crowd of living beings soldiers lawyers smugglers gypsies shepherds outlaws and beggars the waxwork figures guaranteed to thrill with nervous suspense or overflow with sensibility at the appropriate moments are replaced by real folk like old mortality andrew fairservice dougal dalgerty and peter peebles whose humour and pathos are those of our own world the historical background faint misty and unreal in mrs radcliffe's novels becomes in those of scott arresting and substantial the grave artificial dialogue in which mrs radcliffe's characters habitually discourse descends to some of scott's personages but is often exchanged for the natural idiom of simple people the gothic abbey dropped down in an uncertain haphazard fashion in some foreign land is deserted for huts barns inns cottages and castles solidly built on scottish soil we leave the mouldy air of the subterranean vault for the keen winds of the moorland the terrors of the invisible world only fill the stray corners of his huge scene he creates romances out of the stuff of real life End of chapter 8. Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia.